This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast contains profanities as defined by society, man, like love and peace and references to excrement. It's Monday, April 24th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today is a great day for people who do not like bad cable news. All in one day, the Tucker fuck off. Lem exit. What's next? Don't tell me, rule of three. Watch out, Kenny the Jet Smith from TNT's NBA Today. Please, God, don't let it be Kenny the Jet Smith. The New York Times covered Don Lemon's firing with the headline, Don Lemon, CNN star anchor to leave the network. The subhead, Mr. Lemon has been under scrutiny since making remarks about women and aging in February that were widely perceived to be sexist. So that's when he was under scrutiny? That's when the scrutiny start? What about secretly advising Jussie Smollett during his hoax hate crime? Well, I guess sometimes scrutiny kicks in later than other times. Tucker's misdeeds were a little harder to pin down exactly why he was let go. Was it that he embarrassed bosses during the Dominion suit? Maybe. More probable is that it wasn't the last suit. It's the next one that led to the end of Carlson's Fox tenure. Producer Abby Grossberg is suing the network and Tucker Carlson for, among other things, sexism. And there is apparently a lot of tape. Consider it the half liter of blood of this sordid tale. So the workplace has all the usual misogynist details you would expect from a Fox workplace, but I read the suit and I was riveted by the allegations of anti-Semitism. So, for instance, there were a lot of Christmas displays in the workplace and they were loud and obnoxious and Abby Grossberg, I guess, tried to turn them down or off and she was called Scrooge or Grinch. Upon information and belief, Mr. McCaskill, this is a supervisor guy, Alexander McCaskill, also hung up a sign on a smaller Christmas tree, which had been placed next to Miss Grossberg's desk that read Hanukkah Bush. Then they talk about an Israeli employee of Fox News on the Tucker Carlson team. As the year came to an end, Ms. Grosberg brought each of her team members a gift to thank them for their diligent work. In turn, Mr. Yarin, that is the Israeli guy, brought a babka, the lawsuit calls it, an historically Jewish sweetbread for the office. When Mr. McCaskill learned that there was a babka in the office, he began to loudly and obnoxiously demand that the Tucker Carlson Tonight booking team have, quote, the bread made by the Jews. Thereafter, anytime Mr. Yaron purchased his lunch from the Jewish bakery, known as Bread's Bakery, Mr. McCaskill loudly proclaimed to the Tucker Carlson Tonight booking team that Mr. Yaron went to the, quote, Jew bakery and that he had gone, quote, to see his people. I don't want to give the misogyny short shrift. I'll read this part, however. In these discussions, and this also shows, you know, is anyone a hero here? In these discussions about Nancy Pelosi's plunging neckline or the looks of female members of Congress, in these discussions, no woman, whether she was a Republican politician or a female staffer at Fox News, was safe 
from suddenly becoming the target of sexist, demeaning comments such as being called A. And then they say a word that starts with C, and that word is not challah. On the show today, the complex question of gun crime. So complex. That's in the spiel. But first, being disqualified from public office has taken on new momentum with a novel reading of the U.S. Constitution. The group Free Speech for People brought suit against Madison Cawthorn, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and others who they say had sympathies with and lent support to the January 6th insurrection. The 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution should disqualify those individuals and argues my next guest who provided the intellectual underpinnings for this suit and these arguments, it should also disqualify Donald Trump himself for being able to run for the presidency. Indiana University law professor Gerard Magliocca is up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Even though he's already been president, you probably know that. There are many who claim that Donald Trump is simply not qualified to be president. When they say that, they usually mean he just doesn't have the chops, the intelligence, the temperament, the rationality, etc. But there is a group of people led by my next guest, Gerard Magliocca, who literally argues that he is disqualified from being president. There are amendments to the Constitution to back him up. Gerard Magliocca is a professor at Indiana University and author of American Founding Son, John Bingham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. That's the amendment in question. Professor Magliocca, welcome to The Gist. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Nice to be here. Take me through the 14th, specifically Section 3, and what that says about people like Donald Trump attempting to run for office. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War to basically prevent former Confederates from serving in office again unless Congress gave a pardon of sorts to those individuals. So the idea was that people who had been government officials or military officers and then left to join the Confederacy were not sort of deserving of trust to come back into the government because they had tried to destroy the Constitution. And so they were going to be excluded unless they showed through things that they did that they deserve to be brought back. And then Congress could, by a supermajority vote, give them a pardon. Uh, Now, note that this only applied to people who were officials. It didn't apply to every former Confederate. It was meant to be a kind of targeted remedy that would deal with the worst of the worst. And this was enforced for a period of time after the Civil War against people like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis that you would know. Um, And uh, then was basically kind of forgotten until January 6, 2021, when then people 
started to talk about it as again as a possibility. But you remembered. You have probably a, po- a copy of a pocket constitution. You would look at it every once in a while. And did you ever say to yourself, I wonder if this can be applied? I wonder if this can be applied before January 6th to any other Americans who seem to have either endorsed or literally taken up arms against the United States? No, I mean, the funny story about that is I wrote the article that my work is based on now in 2020 because we were all at home during the pandemic. And I thought to myself, gee, is there any part of the Constitution that nobody has written about left? Mm -hmm. And I came to see that, okay, this section was the one part that was uh, not written about. And then I found it was an interesting story. And I wrote the paper and I put it up for people to look at in December 2020. And then a few weeks later, January 6th happened. So I didn't write it with any thought about it was going to apply to anybody today or any thought about uh, Trump or anything like that. Yes. Um, So I know that it it wasn't biased. It, It couldn't be. It couldn't have been biased in that way. That was really, it was just going to be a pure historical project that only a handful of people were going to be interested in. And then that night of January 6th, when everyone started to refer to what had occurred as an insurrection, then, of course, the light bulb went on in my head. Like, well, okay, if it's an insurrection, then that means that this provision could apply to at least some of the people who were involved. In the actual post-Civil War period, how many people were actually barred? And was it ever actually used in a court to disqualify a specific person? Yes, it was used uh, a number of times, uh, probably about a dozen court cases. And then also in other circumstances where it was the U.S. Army that was doing the enforcing in the immediate aftermath of the war when you basically had military uh, rule in the former Confederacy. So, uh, yes, there are are cases that uh, have been cited in the recent Section 3 cases that applied it after the Civil War. And in those cases of whom it was applied to, they had all, I assume, but you tell me, they had literally put on an enemy uniform. They'd taken up arms, sworn allegiances to the Confederate States of America. There was no ambiguity about their allegiances, right? Right. I mean, often they were kind of local officials in a southern state that then just continued to do the same job in under the Confederate government rather than sort of not being part of the Confederate government. So that was a one class of people. And then there were some others who were kind of higher level, like, for example, there was a guy who had been a government official uh, prior to the war, and then he became governor of North Carolina during the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, he tried to become the U.S. senator from North Carolina, and the Senate refused to allow him to take the seat because they said he was disqualified by Section 3. So a mix of sort of small fry people and more important people, but there was really no doubt, except in one or two cases, as to whether somebody was a Confederate. I mean, it was pretty obvious that they either were or they weren't. Yeah, but there is doubt if Marjorie Taylor Greene, who your group Free Speech for People brought a case against, or Madison Cawthorn, same thing, or especially Donald Trump, who you're advocating for barring for office. There is at least a question if they could be considered uh, 
a confederate or the modern version thereof. There were no, tell me if I'm wrong, but there were no instances, there, there is no precedent for someone occupying an office, a, a federal office in Washington, D.C., seeking to hold on to that office, which would apply to Cawthorn then and still Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, any force of law intervening and say, no, your attempt to continue on in this office represents a violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's correct as as to a federal office. There were state officers who were who were removed for their role in the Confederacy. For federal positions, it was just people weren't allowed to take the position when they showed up and tried to take it. And was there any ambiguity, or I'm just uh, asking about the history, was there anyone on the Union side of things who certainly fought against the Confederacy who was opposed to barring these people? Not initially. Now, after a few years, there were more people in the North who essentially said, why don't we just let bygones be bygones and forgive most of the former Confederates, except maybe for the Jefferson Davis Davis types, um, on the grounds that, well, it'll help bring the country together. And really, it's not excluding these people from office is not making things better in the South or making race relations better and so on. So actually, within about four years of the 14th Amendment being ratified, Congress did exercise its power and grant a broad amnesty to most of the former Confederates, leaving out only about a few hundred. Um, and that was sort of how people looked at it after they'd seen it in action for a few years. Uh, or, or also, they just thought, well, okay, these people have been excluded for a while, and now it's all right if we let them back in. Um, so the, the actual ratification of Section 3 was pretty uncontroversial. Yeah. So to go to uh, the Free Speech for People site, and you have a 14.3 campaign, you list some challenges your group has brought to insurrectionists, your phrase, seeking office. And I I followed a number of these, the ones that got pretty far along into uh, judicial hearings, not exactly trials, but there was the Marjorie Taylor Greene case in Georgia and Madison Cawthorn, who was allowed to seek office, but then defeated. And then there were challenges which didn't get as far in Arizona. Now, in each of these cases, uh, it does seem that the question of insurrectionist, that label, is a lot more ambiguous than it was in the actual cases post-Civil War. Would you agree to that? Yes, definitely. Because everybody after the Civil War understood that being part of the Confederacy is what made you subject to Section 3. Okay. Now, they didn't say, they didn't just limit it to that. They said insurrection, right? And there there are other insurrections in American history. Uh, But then you have to work through, okay, well, was January 6th an insurrection? Right, first of all. And then second, what about any particular person and what they did? Were they engaged in that insurrection or right. was their involvement kind of too, you know, marginal or peripheral? Right, right. So one of the Proud Boys seeking office probably would be, these laws would apply. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in the trial, evidence was presented that she talked about a 1776 moment and then... Um, I guess some inferences were asked to be made that 1776 moment uh, supported the insurrection. She and her defense provided tape 
uh, essentially opposing, at least for a time and verbally, the actual rioting in the Capitol. You add it all up again. It is much more ambiguous and brings me to the question. Uh, I understand that you have expertise in this matter and you're making the point that I'm always in favor of uh, thought-provoking ideas, but what about the costs of actually barring a person from office? Um, That is an undemocratic initiative. That is taking away the will of the voters. Do you worry about doing that? Because in long question, but you know, at least in North Carolina, we saw the will of the voters rebuke Madison Cawthorn. Isn't that a better outcome than having by fiat, by judicial interdiction, have barred him from seeking uh, re-election? Well, I mean, okay. So one thought is the constitution's already made that determination by putting section three into operation, right? So in other words, what is it really saying? Okay, there's a very narrow class of people who have engaged in activities that are so destructive to the Constitution that we can't give them the opportunity to remain in office or, you know, as one person has put it, get a second chance to do what they tried to do the first time. Right, okay? right, right. Um, That, you know, most people do better the second time around than the first time around or whatever they're doing. And so by letting them stay in office or seek office again, you're just making it easier for them to do what they failed to do the first time around. And that you're applying this only to a very narrow set of people. Now, the second thing I'll point out is, look, I'm not the one who decided that January 6th or started calling January 6th an insurrection. Uh, The people who were doing that were Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, members of Congress on both parties, uh, I mean, it was a widespread sort of res- immediate response, right? Yeah. So in that sense, like, it was like, hey, this is a very serious, un- unprecedented event, an attack on the United States Capitol by, you know, a non-foreign force. And so that calls into question or brings into play things that just normally wouldn't be in play. So you'd have to sort of agree that this was an insurrection. This is very serious. And... That's why it makes more sense to allow for a very small number of people to be excluded. Yeah. Whereas normally you would want the voters to make that determination. Yeah, I would say that small number of people should include the guys with uh, zip ties and spears who were taking dumps on Nancy Pelosi's desk. There's it's it's a more attenuated link to the actual representatives. And you probably know this about me. I loathe Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, Gosar Big, State Representative Fincham. These aren't just people I disagree with or strongly disagree with. You know, I try to be very fair on the show, but I have no qualms about saying how much I loathe them and how dangerous I think they are. But I also think about what happened in Tennessee. And there you have uh, such an overwhelming majority of politicians who are able to define the actions of protest. And they attempted to do this as something akin to an insurrection. I know it's not the U.S. Constitution. I know it's state court. But you could see the principle. If we so very much loathe certain representatives, we can try to seek barring them from office by use of uh, an obscure constitutional clause by your own admission is the only one not written about. So it's obscure. I think it's a lot worse than letting the voters decide, even if that includes returning all but Madison Cawthorn to office. 
Because you made a choice. Sorry, again, you made the political choice to bring this and to talk about this. And it wasn't just, hey, I'm a, a, I'm an officer of the Constitution. I'm pursuing these cases in state court. So you obviously think there's some good political reason to pursue the cases. Well, look, the, the political aspects of it are above my pay grade. You know, I'm a law professor, right? So, I mean, I have to focus more on the legal question. Now, you know, part of it is, look, when you have a plausible case against somebody, you pursue it before whatever tribunal, you know, is there to hear it. And, you know, they make their call. So there, there's some one aspect of that. Second is, you know, sometimes by having cases like this, you find out things you put people on the spot, you know, and there's value in that, okay? Third is, look, you know, it's fine to say, hey, I don't think that, you know, Congresswoman Taylor Greene or any other particular member of Congress had enough of an involvement in what happened to justify excluding them. And in fact, that is basically the conclusion that was reached, at least in, in, her, in her case. Um, you know, different with Donald Trump, right, who was obviously much more involved I mean, was the central player in this sort of situation than, you know, really almost anybody else. I think if you just look at it as a legal matter, uh, it's a pretty strong case that he is subject to Section 3. Now, what, what that would lead to when you actually bring it to court is another question. Um, we could disagree how strong a case it is, but what about the idea that you're pursuing this at the same time that Jack Smith or the Justice Department is looking at other possible uh, uh, federal crimes? Fannie Lewis is looking at crimes in Georgia. Would it be logical or um, fair for states to, and the listeners should know, you have letters to the secretaries of state or that the equivalent of that position in every state asking to bar Donald Trump from office. So would it be logical or fair for secretaries of state to come to that conclusion before the actual prosecutors looking at his behavior come to their conclusions? Well, it is fair because they're independent things, right? That is, you don't need a criminal indictment or a conviction to bar someone under Section 3. None of the former Confederates were convicted of any crimes when they were excluded from office. Um, so the secretaries of state have to make their own independent judgment when the time comes as to whether a candidate is eligible. Uh, now, if an indictment happens, okay, that might influence how they think about it, but they're not required to wait on it. Also, some of the things that Trump might be indicted for uh, have nothing to do with January 6th, right? There's the New York case, for example, but also there's these handling of documents in Mar-a-Lago and so on. And, right. you know, he might be indicted or convicted of that, but that doesn't bar him from running for president, you know, right. because it's not about insurrection. So, I mean, I think they have to reach their independent judgment. The other thing is, look, these state secretaries of state, they're on these deadlines because the election happens on a certain day, you know. So at some point, they've got to just make a decision. Okay, you know, we've got to start printing the ballots. Who can appear on the ballot? So at that point, they just have to make a call. And maybe they'll have the aid of these prosecutions or indictments, and maybe they won't. So my question was, is it fair or logical? So you are positing that there could be this situation where, where Jack Smith, the Justice Department, says, you know, we just can't bring charges for 
anything close to an insurrection or or inciting a riot, Brandenburg, etc. It's just the charges don't fit. And Fannie Lewis says the same thing. Or maybe, you know, Trump beats the case in Georgia. So there's no legal case against him. But at the same time, a sufficient number of secretaries of state say you can't be on the ballot because we believe in Professor Magliocca's ideas. And that would be good well, of course, it's subject to a court challenge, right? So, I mean, if some secretary of state were to decide that, I mean, Trump can bring an appeal to the courts and say, look, they've got it wrong. I am eligible and can say exactly what you just said. Basically, look, you know, there aren't any criminal cases. I wasn't indicted, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, the, the fact of the, those people making that determination, that's just the first step in the process that's going to lead to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, you know, I mean, just because let's say, you know, you're a prosecutor, you make a certain determination. Well, I could make a, a reach a different conclusion, you know, uh, looking at the facts and think that, OK, in fact, either there ought to have been a charge or just, OK, it's not a charge. You know, we're just disqualifying you from running for office. You know, it's not as serious, right, as putting you in jail. So, I mean, you, you might apply a different standard to those two things. Yeah. Would it be a desirable outcome to you if two or three secretaries of state take you up on this? Even two or three secretaries of state in states where the politics say Donald Trump has no chance of winning. They bar him from office. Would that be good for politics and fairness and civic hygiene and all those conditions? Well, look, I my view would be we want the Supreme Court to decide this as soon as possible mm -hmm. because if it's just out there and kind of uncertain and then you start having the election in the primaries, let's say, that's a problem because then people can come out and say, oh, well, we don't really know if Trump's eligible or not. Should you really vote for him or not? Or, well, he won, but hey, you know, maybe he's not really going to be able to you know, serve as president, et cetera, right? It would be better to just get that all settled. I mean, whatever the Supreme Court does with it, all right, fine. Then we'll just go on with the, the, the election if they let him run. Um, so the secretaries of state acting kind of sooner rather than later will help move that along uh, because if we wait too long, then it starts to get hard if you're in the middle of the primaries to say, oh, okay, yeah, Trump won this primary or this caucus, but, but now we're going to come in and say he's not eligible, right? That's a little more confusing at a minimum. And so I'd like at least one secretary of state to do it simply so that we could get a court case underway and get it resolved. Gerard Magliocca is a professor at Indiana University's Robert H. McKinney School of Law, and he advises the group Free Speech for People, which seeks to bring injunctions against certain insurrectionist candidates for running from office based on the Constitution. Professor Magliocca, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Bloomberg had an article today titled, You Can't Just Shoot People. But I've been following the news, and it does seem like there's quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. The question is why. Why so much gunplay in the USA? 
It's not just me asking the question. Martha Raddatz assembled an esteemed panel on ABC's This Week, This Week. And after a police chief and gun researcher weighed in with their theories, Raddatz threw up her hands, which no longer marks you as a non-combatant in this society. Thanks so much. And thanks both of you for joining us this morning. A very complicated issue. Raddatz there saying, hey, don't shoot the messenger. No, really, please don't shoot the messenger. How do we engage with this question? How can we really figure out why a country with more guns than people has so many people shot with guns? It is complicated, isn't it? Well, I looked at some other statistics. Tiger deaths worldwide. Turns out that areas with zero tigers or only tigers maintained in well-regulated caged environments, those areas experiencing very few killings by tigers. And if you look at country with only a few tigers, also few people get eaten by tigers. But then in places with lots of tigers, you really see the eaten with tiger demographic explode. The graph is convincing if my words aren't. Similarly, longbow death injuries in 14th century England. After the longbow was invented, they went up a lot more than before there were longbows in England. And then after longbows stopped being used, you really see longbow deaths plunge. The reason there are gun deaths is that there are all these guns. Gun purchases were up during the pandemic, and now we're being gunned down afterwards. I don't mean to be overly didactic or too obvious. There is an insight to be gained here. One insight is that we as humans are often drawn to multi-causal explanations, thinking it's complicated. Now, it might seem, really? I've seen humans. They don't seem complicated or drawn to the complicated, right? We're pretty stupid creatures. We see, say, epileptic seizures and say, oh, that must be demons. Or we look at schizophrenia and say, ah, demons. Or an overly ambitious woman, or let's just say an ambitious woman for most of the world's history, demons, demons, demons. But once we get past the truly simplistic monocausality, we do tend to deceive ourselves a little bit by saying that everything is caused by everything all at once. I remember when baseball was setting home run records year after year in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, when we look back at the steroid era, we have a pretty good explanation for it. It was the steroids. But then I can't tell you how many debates I was engaged in or covered where there were so many potential causes being cited. Maybe it's these smaller ballparks. Maybe the ball is juiced. Now that might seem ridiculous, except for the fact that differing compositions of baseballs have been responsible over the years for home run spikes. But some of the participants in the argument said back then, well, maybe it's performance enhancing drugs, PEDs, but you know, these players getting more muscular, maybe that's just a consequence of them understanding strength training better. Here was Hall of Fame catcher and broadcaster Tim McCarver in the late 90s asked by Charlie Rose about then-champion slugger Mark McGuire's home run prowess. Is he going to break the record, you think? He could. Because? What's different? Well, the pitching, I think that the secondary pitching, the stoppers are good, the starters are good, the middle relief is deplorable on most teams. Expansion's a reason for, for some of that. Uh, uh, breakdowns, uh, the, the, the pitchers that are breaking down at an alarming rate, shoulder, prob- shoulder problems, right. elbow problems. We now know that the explanation for so many of those McGuire home runs was the same as the explanation for the overall spike in home runs, performance enhancing drugs, enhanced performance. Were the ballpark smaller? They were. 
And that might have influenced a small, small percent of the increase, just like one week with four stupidly random shootings might lead an American to ask, huh, do people have worse tempers all of a sudden? Do people have worse tempers than they did a couple of years ago? The answer is maybe yes. The answer is also maybe no. The answer is certainly if all those ill-tempered people lived in the UK or Japan, we would be fretting about the death of politeness and not about the death of actual people. So really, what's changed? Murder has gone up a bit. Mass shootings have become more noticeable, which begets more mass shootings and more coverage of mass shootings. We also define mass shootings a bit more capaciously. So a bunch of shootings that were just once called or thought of as shootings are now put in the category of mass shootings, especially for statistical purposes. But overall, people are being murdered by guns, I would say entirely because so many people have guns, not because people have become so very murderous. We really have no chance of solving this problem without correctly understanding its causes. But, and this is important, even if we do understand the causes, it's still a hard problem to solve. And also, this is also important, solving doesn't mean eliminate, it means lessening the ill effects of guns, the prevalence of gun deaths. I'll give you another example. Germany pretty well understood the problem of Syrian refugees. There was not a debate within Germany as to why all these Syrian refugees were fleeing the war in Syria and heading to Europe. Now, if there were some big forces within Germany who were actively lying about the causes or putting a lot of money to interest groups to obscure the causes, maybe there would be some confusion. Also, if some percentage of Germans really liked refugees and wanted the refugees and lied to other Germans saying, no, 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 there's not a problem with these refugees, it would have caused a lot of confusion in Germany. But that didn't happen. Syrians were seeking refuge outside of Syria because there was a war inside of Syria, Germany got it. But just because they got it doesn't mean they solved it. Governments nearly dissolved. Angela Merkel's status as a leader of the country was severely threatened. There were huge rifts in a society, even though they knew why the problem was occurring. Now, not understanding it, would have guaranteed there'd be no solution. That is true. But it is a hard problem. Just like making inroads to lowering the number of shootings is a hard problem. New York City did it well and still can do it well, whereas all of the tools available to New York City aren't available to a place like Chicago. Porous borders shared with pro-gun states. That's a big reason. And now... New York City might not even have the tools it once had to return my city to lower rates of gun crime, lower than 2020, because the Supreme Court rulings of Heller, McDonald, and Bruin have really made it hard for a municipality to enforce gun laws, even effective gun laws that once proved to save lives. And this is my last point. The reason why we have so many guns is that we have so many laws allowing so many people to have guns and so few laws preventing that. And if you want to understand the problem to crack its complexity, it's important to understand something that I know you already understand, that all these laws have consequences. We're living in a society that these laws created. 
So a decent response to figuring out the whys of that recent high-profile shooting or the question of that recent mass shooting or the imponderables about that recent school shooting just goes back to the reality that we chose to live in, that we chose for ourselves. So many of these whys are right there in the very prominent laws that we passed and that we don't pass. We don't do it secretly. We debate this a lot. We talk about it quite openly. So as unexciting as it is in a news segment, which seeks to confer insight, the answer, well, what do you expect, is an appropriate response. Really, it is the best answer. It's acknowledging we live in a world governed by gravity, where really obvious inputs result in super obvious outputs. And the anguish around the output doesn't mean that it's some great mystery to the universe. When we see the mom of a slain child, or the classmate of a murdered student, or the girlfriend of a slaughtered black man in his 20s, and that person, that relative, that loved one is crying out, why, why, why? Our hearts should go out, but our heads should go, well, it's obvious why. And if the grieving party says, it's so unfair, it's actually kind of the fairest thing in the world in terms of cause and effect. You reap what you sow, you get out what you put in. These are the choices we've made, and we're living in and with the consequence of those choices. It's excruciating, it's anguishing, it's harrowing, but it's not very complicated. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO. She still, you know, she still retains that title. I want you to know that. But she also has been putting a lot of her time into running the philanthropy division of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Du Peru, And thanks for listening. <laughs>